Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Rob Weaver, Technical Editor-in-Chief, and today I'm joined by Luke Marshall, the technical writer we've got here. Hello. Hi, how are you all doing? <laughs> good. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. All good, good. cheese weeps. And Will Soff, our staff writer on MBUK magazine. Hi, Will. Hi, everyone. How are you doing, doing? guys? We're all gathered today to talk about Downhill World Cup Tech, following on from the rather eventful Leger uh, round that we've just had the weekend gone, um, where obviously the weather played a huge role in it. But I think it's safe to say that we've arguably reached a peak right now in terms of how uh, sophisticated the kit and the bikes have got um, and just how incredible the racing can be at the top end of the sport. Um, So maybe if we just uh, kick things off with the the classic wheel size chat, the quick and fast conclusion we're coming to is that it's, it's probably still a bit of a mixed bag, but there's probably more mixed wheel size hybrid mullet setups, whatever you want to call it, kicking around them, we maybe thought there was going to be a year or two ago. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think if you look at the testing people have been doing, I think it seems to be inconclusive in terms of the stopwatch on which is faster. And I think like most things, it's a compromise. So if you ride two different types of tracks, you might get two different results and then add in personal preference as well. So it's what feels nice to a rider, what ride characteristics they like. They definitely offer different ride characteristics, but whether one is better may be down to the style of riding of that particular rider um, rather than uh, a hard and fast, yes, this setup is fastest. Because I think, I think, well, so Thibaut de Prella won in the men's, I'm pretty sure he's on a mixed wheel size bike. 
I think Max Hartinson, Hartenstern on the cubes on a mixed as well. Pirion, Baptiste Pirion in third. I think it's on a full 29. Connor Fearon, I think he's probably on a mixed wheel-sized bike. And I think Mark Wallace is on a full 29. But it's not just the tall guys riding the mixed wheel-sized bikes, I believe. I'm pretty sure I heard a podcast with Greg Williamson who'd said that um, the mixed wheel-sized in testing was actually faster for him. And he's a big guy. Yeah. And also, yeah. likewise, sorry, Luke, uh, Miranda Miller, someone who was running 29-29 when 29-inch uh, Specialized demo first came out, I think she's now running a uh, mixed wheel size I saw from Crankworks. And she's very okay. tall. So, yeah, that kind of but, backs yeah. up what you're saying. And another one of the tall riders is G. Obviously, he's he switched to mother as well. Um, not racing currently because of his injury, so... You know, speedy recovery to him, but I think he's say one of the one of the taller riders that still is prefers the mullet as well. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I think all that you know the the hype behind the twenty nine thing, and then seeing Lurik and um, Finales at the time firmly standing by the guns and only riding those mullet bikes. It's been quite interesting to see. I guess the yeah the level of testing elsewhere and kind of how that sort of drip fed into what we're seeing on the podium now yeah and two other really fast uh, riders we haven't mentioned are Loris Fergier um, and winner of round one Troy Brosnan they're both on mullet uh, as is Danny Hart so yeah there's certainly plenty of evidence out there that it works definitely and in fact Will that's a, a beautiful segue into what we're about to chat about next just around bike sizing so you mentioned Troy just a second ago am I right in thinking he's actually switched frame size for 2021 yeah that's right so last year he was on a large and uh, he's about 5'9 five, 5'10 five, not exactly sure and then this year uh, he's on a, on a medium sender and he's gone from full 29 as well right into a he's on a mullet now right that's it yeah yeah so big changes for Troy this year and it seemed to have worked so far. I mean, yeah. uh, may, maybe less so in Leger, but otherwise. Yeah, result around one spoke for itself, really, yeah. Definitely. Um, do we know about any other guys or, or girls that have maybe switched frame sizes or anything this year? Because it seems like maybe not just in downhill as well, but maybe not everyone is riding the longest bikes around, maybe that we thought they might. I think I'm pretty sure Laurie's gone down from a a medium Monraker to a small, I think, on the new carbon frame. Well, there's a few what seems to be more open in um in the Endura side of things that a lot of the riders over there don't ride maybe the bikes you might think they would. So Jack Moyer, for example, who's uh, um who took the second round of the uh Fassa. EWS and finished second at the first round. Like his, he's on a chose a large Canyon Stripe over the extra large that he should he might ride given his his height. Um, and yeah, the same about Richard Root rides a medium. And so I'm not sure. So there might be more enduro bases. The style of the tracks are a bit more techy and awkward um, and tighter. But again, um, in the downhill side. There's probably, you know, 
a few riders on bikes that might not be as as big and long and as uh, as you might expect them to be on. I guess Lewis' bike never looks massive. No, and his riding style is a little bit different as well to some of the other guys out there. He seems to ride a bit more off the back rather than being central. Perhaps the same way Sam Hill might have. So yeah, it's uh, I guess riding style as as well. Um, but I think we can agree that a lot of the the bikes coming out now are, are longer than they've ever been before. So whether that has something to do with the riders sizing back down to a size that might be appropriate for their height, uh, I, I don't know. Interesting, nonetheless. Though the next thing I kind of wanted to talk about really was um, just going through the top five in each of the. Um, elite categories there's a lot of common cells in there um and it, it's obviously it's a mix between um the current bike and that new prototype bike we've been floating around so as you two are experts i wanted to get your take on why they're doing so well it can't obviously it's not just about bike you know the majority is down to the rider but it, it's got to be, you know, some kind of positive trend we're seeing, right? With these bikes consistently. Listen, I think there. you'd have to look on the um, the amount of common cells on the hill. I think they support at least three teams, possibly four teams. Um, and so just with the volume of riders, you know, then there's going to be a, a high volume of, or high percentage of them achieving good results. And, and that's not to take anything away from the bike, but... You know, there's just if, if you look on the hill there, there's going to be a lot of commissars and and from and from that then you assume there's going to be a few of those that will get good results as well. Just that higher frequency, um, you think? Yeah. But I guess then the performance of the bike is probably one of the reasons why there's so many on the hill that riders want to be on the bike that they think is going to be the fastest down the mountain. Because we're seeing quite a lot of privateers buy these bikes as well, aren't we? Seeing a lot of those Supremes out there that people have actually put their hands in their pockets for yeah i mean they're yeah direct sales brand so relatively affordable for your privateer racer i think um, common style kind of you saw a renaissance of this high pivot design um and a more rearward axle path which some people say carries more speed over rough stuff um because the wheel is uh, is not traveling forwards when the bike hits a bump and then that's been adopted by a number of brands like GT and Norco, and most recently uh, Trek with the new session. So I think perhaps there's something in that high pivot design. So we should probably, at this point, shout out to Balfour for doing it all those years ago, right? Yeah, for starting it out high pivot <laughs> with an idler crew. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, because Danny Hart rode on a Balfour for years, didn't he? Yeah, as a, a, and, a, and an Appalachia, I think they called it, didn't they? Right. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Wow. Um, but okay, yeah. So we we think there's clearly something in it. Those designs obviously differ a little bit. Does anyone can anyone tell me a bit about the prototype common cell that we've seen? Do you want to feel this one, Luke? I've got. Um, I can give it a go. So only I say I haven't been out to any World Cups and been able to see it. So this is only from from reports that we've seen, kind of through the web and whatnot. Um, instead of the like the single high pivot that the current model uses. Yeah. So this new one uses a, a virtual high pivot point. So it's effectively, a, I think it's like a, a four bar design um, that has a connecting link between the lower chain stay as such and 
the rocker. Um, And that adds another element to design. And effectively, then um, I'd have to look into the the reports a bit more detailed. But that virtual high pivot point is, is not the only bike that does that now. So the, well, Norco, the new Norco range, the Enduro bike, also uses a similar system. So they use a virtual high pivot. Um, and from using a virtual high pivot, they can um, fine tune like the anti-squat and the pedaling characteristics and uh, the anti-rise as well. Um, more so than you could when it's just a single high pivot. Um, The single high pivots have a few more negative traits. Um, They're still obviously very good at moving the the wheel in the direction they want to, to absorb the bumps better. Um, But there's some drawbacks to that. So now, so this new common style and and the Norco range, um, then both use this virtual high pivot design, which allows the uh, the bike to, say, fine-tune the kinematics to, uh, yeah, improve pedaling and improve yeah anti-rise and like the control and braking as well so that's that's super interesting because we saw the old uh commensal uh under pierron or should we say perhaps the the original supreme and we saw a few prototype mules floating around with uh different holes drilled in the swing arm to attach the idler in different places so you could see them playing around with the anti-squat characteristics of that previous design so yeah, perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised to see uh, a virtual high pivot with an idler uh, if that's something that they, they clearly see as uh, core to like how the design works. Well, it's interesting as well because I think you guys already mentioned Trek with the new Session, which uses a high pivot as well. Um, we already mentioned Norco, but we should probably mention GT as well. The Fury uses a high pivot. I think you've ridden that bike, haven't you, Luke? Uh, yeah, yeah. When that came out, um, that was released a couple of years ago, at least now, wasn't it? So. Yeah. And it looks like they're working on something new as well. Well, they're introducing that to their Enduro bike, aren't they? Maybe, perhaps. Yes, yes, potentially, potentially. But it's interesting to see the way everyone sort of, um, or, or not everyone, but more the momentum behind that type of design and the fact that we're now seeing it not just in downhill, but in Enduro as well, like you said, with the range from Norco, obviously Cannondale's new Jekyll, um, Forbidden have a couple of bikes with high pivots, Deviate. So it's clearly it's clearly something on everyone's radar now, and it's, it's widely been more accepted as a positive by the sounds of it. So it's going to be interesting to see, I guess, how it's going to, or how things are going to go in the future. Again, another beautiful segue into new kit from the future, or maybe not from the future, but from what we spotted on the internet at the weekend. As Luke's already mentioned, we weren't at the race. Um, we're still not travelling overseas. But we are still trying to trawl the internet, go on all of our rival sites, Pink Bike Vital, all of those guys who are still attending the races, and have a little look and see what's out there. And... So what new kit have we spotted? Right, so there, there has been some, uh, yeah, some interesting spy shots coming out. So we've been able to spot uh, some new bits and bobs on Greg's Minar, Greg Minar's bike. And uh, we know he's a, a Shimano guy, so perhaps we can infer 
but that might be some uh, downhill specific uh, gear train coming out. What do you think, Rob? Well, I mean, I'm trying to think back to the last time we saw uh, Shimano update Saint. So I would say there's probably a strong chance that there's some new bits and pieces potentially coming. But I think it's always good to see, you know, those those riders, the top riders in the world, testing the new stuff out in the field where it's probably going to get the harshest treatment possible. You know, the crash is going to be harder. It's going to be ridden to the very, very limit. Admittedly, with stuff like um, the brakes, I think when it comes to updating brakes, it's always good to probably put um, riders like me, (laughs) I'm going to drag my brakes more. I think that's probably a better test for brakes, whether there's going to get either enough heat in them in the first place or they're going to pump up where I'm just uh, panic braking nonstop down the hill. But um, yeah, it, I guess it's probably about time for Shimano to do something with those things. So it'll be interesting to see how that all unfolds yes, over the coming months. Absolutely, yeah. And as you say, that uh, we as as consumers and as riders can reap the benefits of Shimano's testing and you know Greg Minard putting himself out on a limb there testing prototype parts uh, so that when we get them they're as good as they can possibly be um, but yeah just to sort of go into a bit more detail for the listeners like that mech looks like it's got really nice wide uh, gaps between the the pivots on on the links of the mech so the parallelogram should be super stiff and strong um, and there's plenty of material on there so it should be resistant to any kind of flex or damage and then uh, the cranks as well, they, they've certainly got some Shimano-esque lines on there, but perhaps with a bit more material added than maybe we've seen before, again, for stiffness and strength. What about you, Luke? Have you spotted anything? Um, well, going back to the brake things, it was uh, it was interesting to see that um, Troy Brosnan is actually running larger rotors on the back of his bike, so a 220 rotor on the back and uh, okay. a 200 rotor on the front, which... Um, I guess conventional thinking probably dragged over from motocross days is that, you know, you have a larger front rotor and, uh, and a smaller back one. Um, but from, from, you know, viewing things online and stuff and there, and his mechanic was saying that, um, the back brake gets used more, it gets hotter and, uh, and the larger rotor then helps just dissipate that heat a bit better. So it's kind of keeping, say his rear brake more consistent, um, as well, maybe not for the ultimate power, but just, you know, the, that larger rotor actually, um, yeah, where it gets used more than with the big one rather than the smaller one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was interesting to see that, say, there's a, a couple of bikes out there that they SRAM look like they have some new new rotors in use as well. So um, so we'll see if there's any developments from that, from SRAM on that front. Mm-hmm. And uh, it'd be interesting to see if they come out with, with a thicker rotor, um, on for, for Troy or, or, or a similar rider to use on the rear because his mechanic was saying something about it being 1.8 mil for the width of a, a 203 rotor and 2 mil width for the 240 rotor, presumably because it's designed to be a bit more, a bit stiffer and a bit uh, more resistant to, to heat. So perhaps it's more to do with his feel than, than the size. Not, not sure, but yeah, certainly an interesting yeah, looking setup. Yeah, but it's uh, say as you'd see on Reese on, Re- on Reese Wilson's bike, then say they've got some uh, some new discs on there. So just to 
just to point out, you guys are referring to it was was it a video on Pink Bike that you watched about um, uh, Troy Brosnan's yeah. bike? Is that right? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. correct. Yeah, with with Ben Cathro doing the presenting. Yeah. Uh, yes, excellent. Um, now, before we started, we also mentioned about the use of O-chain devices. We've seen kicking around. Will, can you explain what an O-chain device is? So an O-chain device is something that you put on between your crank arm and the chain ring, which offers an adjustable degree of float. Um, so when you start pedaling, you will feel um, a certain gap, uh, a damped gap before the pedals actually engage. So that's um, float between the crank and the chain ring, right? It is, yeah. And okay. the theory behind that is it will help isolate uh, your feet uh, from the pedal kickback caused by uh, traditional rear suspension designs, uh, which are designed with a degree of anti-squat and uh, perhaps uh, allow uh, the the rider to experience the, the silky smooth feeling you'd get without a chain, which Aaron Gwynn talked about in his amazing winning run at Leo Gang, where his, uh, his chain snapped out of the gate and he reported uh, feeling that the suspension was working really well. So that's the theory. <laughs> um, okay, so what what bikes have you guys seen them on so far? So they're most noticeably on like um, the Canyon Factory Racing Team. So on Troy's bike, his downhill bike, he's got one on. Yeah. But then they're also, you know, employing them on the Enduro team as well. So Jack Moyer's Enduro bike is, is running it as well. So that's kind of, I guess, the two most high-profile bikes that they're, they're on that I've noticed over, over the last week or so. Okay, that's interesting. And has either of you tried it yet? Have you tried a no-chain? I have a quick ride on one. And uh, I was impressed how subtly the, the the pickup was damped. So as you pedaled, you didn't feel this sort of like ratchet click in terms of like no engagement, sudden engagement. It is more like riding an e-bike where you sort of feel the the, the cranks engage gently. Um, okay. So yeah, it was quite good. It, it felt uh, more uh, refined than I thought it might. But what about over the bumps or anything like that? You didn't. Unfortunately for me, it was only a car park test, so perhaps we'll have to go to go to Loop next. So uh, we've we've got one in currently. So uh, I'm waiting to fit to a bike. I just need to organise the um, four bolt chainring for it. Obviously, it's uh, it replaces the direct mount chainring. So I'm just in that process of getting myself a a four bolt chainring to attach to it, and then um, and then we'll get it under yeah under some testing. Nice, nice. I think it's fair to say we've also seen a reasonable smattering of um, new RockShox kit, right? New, it's all badged up black box, so black box fork and shock. Do we have any kind of ideas what what might be there? I guess on the forks, um, from most photos online, they you would they still look to be using a more traditional boxer chassis with a 35 mil stanchions but i would be surprised if a new boxer comes out it doesn't have 38 mil stanchions like the new zeb has they look chubby um, don't you think the stanchions do look a bit chubby. I, you, uh, I, yeah well perhaps maybe uh but uh, i think if there is a new boxer coming out i think it will have it will have yeah can I just say, uh, for the listeners, like uh, our, our bike radar crew are very uh, attentive to 
all of the spy shots and the photos that come out. So it's very hard to have a, an eye that's calibrated to to within three mil of stanchion size. So yeah, shout out <laughs> to you guys. That's 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 good going. I don't know. It's just total guesswork. No, no, I'm with you. I think it would, perhaps they do look different, but yeah, it's very hard to see, isn't it? It's going to be interesting, and and the new shock as well by the look of it, which is maybe a slightly different layout to the Super Deluxe we've seen in the past. Who knows? I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Anything else new? I guess uh, we've seen the Monreca team on the new summon. You've just tested the aluminium summon, right, Luke? Just tested the aluminium summon, yeah. And then uh, during testing, they released the, the carbon version. Yeah. Ooh. So, uh, yeah, so now I, now I feel like they did. <laughs> and where, but, did the, um, where did the summon come up against the other three bikes on test in terms of the weight? It was the heaviest, actually. So the summer's always famed for being one of the lightest downhill bikes out there. But um, compared to the specialized demo, uh, that's kind of cheating. That bike has trail tires on it, a stock. So if you were to put downhill tires on it, then it may be more even. But the the carbon um, Saracen Mist and the carbon Canyon Sender were both, yeah, lighter. So um, the the Mondraker, the new Mondraker in carbon, again, might might take its crown as being one of the lightest bikes again, but we'll have to wait and see. Nice. And do you know much about the new bike? I think it's got a bit more adjustment than the than the previous model, right? So the aluminium bike was yeah, um, yeah, it was full 29 and no adjustability. And I think the um I think the carbon one, as you mentioned earlier when we were talking about it, say has certainly changed their adjustability. Um, I think I'd be surprised if Laurie and that are running it in a mullet setup as well now. I think it's available in full 29 or mixed wheel size. Okay. And I think, yeah, I think those guys are riding it as a mixed wheel size bike. Yeah. So I I haven't looked into the new carbon one too much, but um, but yeah, it still maybe lacks, well, I'd say without uh, checking for details, if it's as adjustable as bikes like the like the Canyon Sender are that are very adjustable. And I'm pretty sure the, the production bike uses, it comes with their mind, mind suspension system, which is a type of uh, telemetry system which helps you in terms of bike setup with setting your sag and making sure, you know, you've got your dials in all the right places by, you know, um, it connects to your smartphone essentially via an app. And then it will give you a readout and, let you make adjustments accordingly to try and make your bike as balanced and as fast as possible. But it also gives you all your regular ride data. So, you know, distance, elevation, all that sort of stuff. So you can kind of keep tabs on your ride, which is pretty smart. Yeah, the big feature, hey? Yeah, the future is now. Maybe, maybe. And I guess another, brings us on to another topic that we, we said that we were going to just talk about. So data acquisition we see a lot of the top guys and girls using it on their bikes. First question for me is, do you think someone can go out and win without using it? Asking for a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Uh, Yeah, I I guess it depends what kind of rider you are because there's historically riders that can, can ride very well by feel and they have a setup that they like and that's something that they would run all year so the names that immediately spring to mind are people like Bryceland, uh, who's kind of famed for being able to ride a bedstead down the track and still be quick. 
and uh, I kind of seen a bit of that on on uh, Mr. Mr. Cade Edwards as well. He could just ride anything; didn't matter if it's falling apart. Um, but I think it goes without saying that the data acquisition that you can put on your suspension these days and on other things as well, like your brakes, uh, combined with something like a power meter, all that information is going to help you set up the bike. You can look at the shaft speeds of the fork and shock. You can look at uh, when you're looking at the braking and the when the wheel is turning. So like a, like a traditional sort of uh, sensor like you'd have on an e-bike which shows if the wheel's turning, you can see when the wheels are locked. That makes the suspension behave in different ways. Uh, you can look at how far through your travel you are, front and rear. Um, and all these things add up to helping make a bike that you can dial the suspension to make the bike more balanced, front and rear. You can try and keep the wheels in contact with the floor as much as possible, which obviously leads to grip. And then you can make a bike that is supportive for the rider so they're not compensating for things like fork dive uh, or you know a bike that's bottoming out and G out. So I think it's definitely useful. Uh, whether you can win a race without it, I think it'd be very hard to say. Do you think it plays a psychological card as well, potentially? If you, I you know, if you know that you won the last race, but such and such has got this newfangled data acquisition kit coming to the next race, do you think they've got the potentially got a sort of psychological advantage? I think downhill is, is so difficult and there's such a such a mental element to it. I think anything that a rider feels that is giving them an edge over their competition is going to help you go into corners faster and into off blind crests faster and into root and rock gardens faster. So that definitely plays a part. Um, yeah, what were you going to say, Luke? Um, yeah, just reiterate kind of what, uh, what you said. I'm, I'm not sure riders think ah their team over in the other corner of the pits has telemetry they're going to do better than us but i think once you have telemetry and then you take it away from someone then maybe that starts to add doubt a little bit more into their into their mind i think well what could i know that i don't know if you know what i mean and uh so i i think it's one of those things that you say could a rider win without telemetry possibly but i don't think we'll ever see that anymore i the think break, it's, I it's think- I think the braking thing's a really interesting one. Being able to see where you're braking on course or how much you are braking too much, you know, potentially too much. What it's doing in relation to then, I guess, is like you said about the suspension, the effects it's going to have on the suspension and being able to correct that so your bike's maybe working optimally through a rough section where maybe you were kind of, I don't know, dragging a, fr- dragging a back brake just because it's really fast or kind of scary. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, I guess it's being able to take that information and actually do something about it because at the end of it, you know, you can turn those adjusters all you want. But if you can see in black and white on the screen that you're braking in, in this spot too heavily or for too long, it's down to the rider to go, okay, I need to just back off and then trusting that your bike's going to be working well enough in that section to keep you on and not just throw you off yeah i remember listening to a vital mtb podcast with uh, the amazing mr dave garland god rest his soul uh and when he was mechanicking for giant and danny hart and uh elliot jackson 
they were saying that he uh, they had the, the the brake sensors on the bike, and they were saying that sometimes the riders would would not realise that they were perhaps comfort braking or dragging the brakes. I mean, I dread to think how fast you'd have to be going for someone as uh, proficient as Danny Hart or Elliot Jackson to be comfort braking. But yeah, apparently they do it. And then having a sensor there and having data is always going to to allow you to perhaps see things that you wouldn't see. Same as having a, a slow-mo camera on you. you. You've got that extra piece of information you can use to perhaps tune your riding to give you a bit more speed here and there. And it's subjective as well, isn't it? It's like I said before, it's black and white. There's no two ways about it. It's it's just like the stopwatch, really. It's sort of you're either winning or you're not. You're either breaking or you're not. You know, yeah. it's that sort of those those hard facts, which are probably sometimes quite hard to deal with. Yeah, yeah. I'd hate to see how much I break all the time. <laughs> I don't think there's <laughs> enough storage capacity for all the data I would collect. That's... <laughs> With melting servers out in space. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like you're definitely using them why? because you crash the system. <laughs> exactly. Um, what I think is has been another interesting thing, um, and it'd be interesting taking getting your take on on it because obviously Luke, you're riding clips, and Will, you're a dedicated flat pedal rider. Um, we've seen a few um, a few people in these sort of it's been really mixed conditions over the last few weeks of racing. And some of the guys have gone, maybe started on clips, switched back to flats and then switched back to clips for race runs. Some of them have just kind of stuck on flats who normally run clips. So why do you think we're seeing more of that? It feels like something that was happening back in the old days when, you know, I guess Luke and I started out racing and, the majority of the time you you would swap back because there was no hope of clipping in because the pedals were dreadful or your shoes were clogged up and they basically had a big stiff sole that if you were unclipped were deadly. So why yeah. do you think we're seeing these guys do it? Oh, well, yeah, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. That it's, it's something people used to do and then perhaps we haven't seen for a while. So I remember riders like uh, Bryceland would swap back and forth between clips and flats depending on the track um, and... It was something that, as a downhiller, the, the guys on clips would have a pair of 510s and a pair of flat pedals in their bag, just in case. Um, whether this is a, a preference thing with the riders, or whether it's more likely that we've actually seen this year a return to gnarlier and less bike parky tracks, um, is something that, yeah, I, I'm not sure which it says more about. But yeah, if we're turning back the clock to a time where tracks were more technical and rutted and muddy and natural and difficult so that riders actually need flat pedals. I think that's all for, for the better. Do you think, I mean, this is kind of thrown out there a little bit. Do you think the fact that we haven't seen a whole lot of racing over the last year and a half? So a lot of those riders have been on extended off seasons where they can play around a bit more, go to the jumps, ride the skate parks a bit more all on flat pedals, do you think because of that maybe they've spent more time on them and are maybe just a bit more comfy on them? Someone's just yeah, going to say no, has... no, well off. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think um, the calibre of riders that are switching between these, they, like the two pedals at, at World Cup events, um, 
are probably very comfortable on either, if you know what I mean. And and whatever bike they jump on, if it's a skate park bike, BMX dirt jump bike, they're you know be on the flat pedals and and yeah, I think you see there's still that the uh, thing that hangs around, isn't it? Like, uh, learn to ride on flat pedals; it make you a better rider. You know, improves your skills. Mm. So, and I think lots of people do in the winter just put flat pedals on because it's yeah, it, it's fun to hang your foot off and you can hit turns braver. Um, I, I very rarely ride flat pedals, but you know, when you do put them on, there is a yeah, certain sense of security that you feel in certain situations, not in every situation, that's for sure. Um, and yeah, and I, I think, guess, you know, what Will is saying was my first kind of portrait that these first two rounds that we've seen, um, say new track, steep tech, natural woods in quite changeable conditions. Um, people have just been putting on yeah, maybe what they've been practicing over the winter, especially UK riders, maybe more so than others that, you know, in the winter were switched to flat, flat pedals perhaps. Um, and you can clearly see Reese Wilson, who's one of these riders that was, especially at Lear Gang, um, using flat pedals um, in France, in Leger, certainly didn't when he went off that jump and couldn't unclip and Gosh, yeah, had his horrendous crash. He was a, uh, yeah, certainly in the in the wet slip conditions down the steep natural course there he was yeah racing his clips again but so uh, i think it is maybe the courses that are dictating what riders are using and not more so than and, and i guess it's the first first podium for a rider on flat pedals for some time in downhill yeah it must um, be because Fearon in fourth is that right yeah yeah top top man top one corner fear on doing it for the guys on flats um because obviously Sam Hill is the one that stands out in everyone's mind is running flat pedals. Um, and then I think before that, it was uh, Britt McDonald winning in Val d'Azer, whatever year that was, Rob. That was on flats. 2011. 2011, yeah. So it's certainly been a while. But like, Morgan, Morgan Cher rides flat pedals. So mm-hmm. she won, she's won world champs since then, I think. And obviously she's won, like Sam, she's won at World Enduro level as well on flat pedals mm. so yeah I mean like you said the the tracks are getting a bit spicier again I mean I guess they were spicy before but for maybe different reasons maybe just higher speeds would you say rougher and higher speeds whereas the last two rounds have maybe been a bit more technical wider takes mm. a few more lines to pick from bad weather means that you know the ground conditions deteriorate quite badly so do you think we'll see more of that? I mean, I guess, what's the next round, Maribor? Maribor's the next round. Um, yeah, again, quite Maribor. natural. I have, yeah, I have raced Maribor. Um, and is it, yeah. how was it, did it, did it rain when you were there? Um, yeah, I think we had pretty mixed conditions, to be honest. Because it looks um, pretty slick. I think it was wet when we started. I think, fortunately, it dried out um, come race time, I think. But um, but it was yeah kind of on and off showering through the weekend. I think conditions were okay for for racing. Um, yeah, it is. It's it's rooty. You know, there's there's a lot of roots, and I imagine there's a ton more nowadays. Um, in those top woods that you, you don't get to see so much of the um the coverage up there on the Red Bull live stream of the race. Normally, it kind of picks up from the rock garden to the bottom. Mm. But those top woods are particularly rooty, and they're quite dicey, and it's quite yeah, it's all quite slick, but up there. When you get past the rocks, um, cross the fire road and drop in, then it's 
becomes a little bit more loamy soil. A little bit, okay. Um, it's got a bit more grip band there. I mean, this was a long time that I rode it. Um, but the top woods are, yeah, are, are pretty slick. And but the Turn of the century. Hmm? Something like that. Turn of the century. Yeah. <laughs> not quite that long. Yeah. Not, not quite far off, yeah. It's hard for me to remember, so yeah. And so just to, just to throw the, the clips and flats thing back open again, um, so a lot of people think of clips as being something that allows efficient power transfer between the rider and, uh, and the cranks. And uh, yeah, you won't see many uh, track cyclists running flat pedals. So there's definitely an element of that. Did you guys find if you were riding a track like Fort William... Um, that was very fast and had lots of rocks and sort of vibrations, so sort of high-speed sections. Did you find the clips helped to keep your feet located on the pedals so it was one less thing to think about? Was there an element of that? I mean, I never rode it on flat pedals, so I couldn't tell exactly. But I don't Uh think I'd ever go and ride Fort William on flat pedals because it is exactly like you said, it's so rough. And I'm all about making life as easy as possible, especially now I'm getting old. One less thing to think about, like you said. Just, yeah, feet are stuck. Can't move them. Let them stay there. I'll just hold on and do all my comfort braking the whole way down the hill with my arms slowly pumping up to the point <laughs> I can't take my hands off the bars. Yeah, I just wonder, because I've only ever ridden it on, on flat, so I can't really comment. But, yeah, I did hear that there was an element of less energy being expended keeping your feet in place on, on clips. It's one less thing to think about. Once your feet are in that position, they just stay there. Like it's probably one of the reasons I don't ride flat so much. Is um, not that I think one's faster than the other one, but you, yeah, if your feet are getting bounced around, it just it's one distraction extra to think about. You know, I you know I can I drag my brakes so much if my feet are bouncing off. I guess it's less <laughs> of a problem now that pedals and shoes are so good. Um, yeah. I would still say, though, like when you go and ride the same sections of trail, which is what I guess makes it so so phenomenal that someone like Sam Hill and Morgan Shark can go out and win an enduro on flat pedals. It's when you get to those, those sort of interrupted, mellower sections of trail where you really need to pedal, but you've got those annoying roots kind of here, there and everywhere, or rocks or whatever it might be, something that just stifles that momentum enough that you need to get on the gas and then i guess you either need to be so insanely um proficient when it comes to timing to making sure you can just get the power down as and when but i always find that with the clips thing you you know you don't really need to worry too much about that you can just kind of i, I guess kind of mash your way through it so yeah, I don't know. It's it's a it's a really interesting thing, and I I'll be intrigued to hear what you guys think. Whether we're going to see someone like Connor, who's now maybe got a bit of that confidence back that he's lacked over the last season or so, whether he's going to be up there, and whether we're going to see a return of flat pedals on the podium. What do you think? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it, Connor is an absolutely phenomenal bike handler, and I think there is a certain element of momentum that you can gain from being at the top in any sport but perhaps especially in something that is so changeable in terms of track conditions and the types of track you ride uh where confidence is is really a thing and momentum is is great and connor can really throw a bike around so it'd be great to see him up top and i think if we see more tracks like uh 
Leah Gang Wood section and more tracks like Leger, perhaps a return to tracks like Le Breton Schladming style tracks, then yeah, I think you could definitely see more flat pedal riders up the top. Nice. What do you think, Luke? Uh, yeah, it's nice to see flat pedal riders do well. I, I probably believe they will be a minority if they get there. I think clips will rule the roost. Um, when you get to more high-speed tracks, Monson Anne, Maribor, for example, while it is tech, it's not as tech as what we've just seen at Leger and, and the bottom woods at Leogan. Um, and I, I just think a lot of riders nowadays well, have been, you know, possibly really, but I think clips still will be the will be the fastest pedal. Um, and you just need that one in a million rider like Sam Hill to come back and uh, and prove everyone that you, you don't need it. But I think they're few and far between, if you know what I mean. I think they're all fair points, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, before we go, I've got one last thing I want to talk about, and it's something that Will mentioned before we got going with this. Uh, obviously, it's not going to be all about downhill because there was cross country at the weekend. I know we said we're just talking about downhill tech, but it's something that kind of crosses over from one to the other. And that is tire inserts. Now we're used to seeing tire inserts all over the place in downhill and in Joro, but Will, you're saying that more cross country riders are using inserts, which seems insane for those guys where they're so conscious of the weight. It's definitely something where an insert is a weight penalty. So you would expect uh, cross-country riders traditionally to be obsessed with the weight of the bike and perhaps to steer away from anything that would add a few grams. But nowadays you are seeing more cross-country riders using uh, either custom or lightweight tyre inserts um, and gaining the advantages that they offer uh, as apparently to them they outweigh the penalties. So the advantages would be being able to run lower pressures for more traction, uh, especially on wet routes, and just the peace of mind of puncture resistance and not blowing the tyre off the rim. So it is interesting to see uh, as inserts get lighter and more compact that riders from other disciplines, not just downhill, uh, are, are beginning to adopt them. You run inserts, don't you, Luke? I do. I am an insert convert, yeah. Um, wouldn't ride without them these days. So, um, yeah, I've... Yeah, had them in my bikes for the last few years. I just, for me, it's not um, so much about running lower pressures or having extra sidewall stability. It is, it's all about reducing punches, you know, and rim strikes. So, since I've had inserts and I've I've used a couple, um, some Pepe's tire noodles, and now I use uh, rim pack. Okay, um, but. Yeah, like we go out on test bikes that don't have them in and, and you can sure you can ding your rims and cut tires. And since I've been using them, then yeah, not one dent in the rim, not one sliced tire, punctures. I can't remember the last time I had a puncture on a, a bike that I've been running inserts in. I just think that reassurance of them is outweighs any potential negatives with extra weight. And uh I know and if I could decide to run my tires less pressure then yeah maybe i should try but i kind of just for reference i kind of run about 22 in the front and about 26 27 in the rear um changes a little bit on condition but so I'm, I'm not going down super low unless some people do run 
you know, 19 PSI in their tyres and things with inserts. I'm, I'm not that person, but, but as for security, I think they're, they're fantastic. So you'd run them on the XC bike if you had an XC bike? I, uh, yeah, definitely would put them on the XC bike. I've uh, just got a gravel bike, so I'm going to get to put them on my gravel bike. Oh, yeah. They're going everywhere. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, so uh, I am, yeah, I'm pro insert. Do you guys know roughly sort of, I, I don't know, if we look at the top five again in, in both categories, who's running inserts and not? Will, do you know? No, I'm no, sure. I don't. I think I've just seen, I've seen them around the pits and I've seen uh, a small cross-section of riders who have either been running them or if they're not running them, they've been talking about them uh, or okay. even experimenting with them. So they are there. Interesting. I, I know um, when we did a bike check with Greg Minard at Fort Wood World Cup a couple of years ago, and they are quite anti-insert. They just, they just run normal. So just um, DH casing tyres? Just DH casing tyres, yeah. Um, okay. That's the only one I can confirm. Um, but again, that was, I think, 2019, so a couple of years ago, so things might have changed. But, um, but otherwise, I'm not 100% sure who's got them. You have to go around and look at valves and stickers and see what's... Okay, what's well, maybe, teams around there. maybe when we're allowed out a bit further afield, we can um, go do some investigating. You can uh, get your binoculars out and start spying, Luke. Indeed, yeah, yeah, interesting. Or, or yeah. prodding tyres or whatever you need to do. <laughs> um, well, I think that brings us nicely to the end here. So thank you very much, Will. Thank you. Lovely to uh, be involved as always. And thank you, Luke. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks very much, guys. Hopefully we didn't matter too much uselessness. A big thank you to all the listeners that, fingers crossed, I mean, if you've made it this far, fair play. You you've, should probably win some kind of prize that... Unfortunately, because of the shortages, we can't supply. But um, anyway, thank you. And as always, um, like and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss out on an episode. Okay, we'll see you again next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bike Radar.